Welcome to See Here Speak podcast, episode 48. In this episode, I talk with Sydney Bassard about how speech language pathologists can support literacy development, how label stigma is an important consideration, especially in marginalized populations, her new children's book, and literacy in children who are deaf or hard of hearing, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening. After listening, don't forget to check out the website, www.seeherspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. I'm also trying to put more resources in the show notes. So if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or most any podcast platform should have links in the show notes as well. Welcome to See Here Speak podcast, episode 48. Today, I will be speaking to Sydney Bassard, and I wanted her to start by introducing herself. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, so I am Sydney Bassard. I'm a speech language pathologist, and I own the Listening SLP on all social media platforms. Uh, we serve children and adults that have hearing loss, as well as those with reading disorders and dyslexia. Uh, I've been an SLP for, oh my gosh, it's been four years, uh, three, four years, something like that at this point. Um, and what else about me? Um, I love what I do clinically. I also love the fact that being a business owner has allowed me the freedom to uh, dibble and dabble into digital marketing and other aspects. And then I recently wrote a children's book with my mom. Um, so all the all the things that can happen. <laughs> okay, as a well, professional, <laughs> we have to just jump right. I, I you know jump right into the children's book because I do want to hear more about it. I've signed up for the pre copy, so I'm so excited to get it. So uh, will you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so it's titled A Day with Mom. Uh, and the reason that we wrote this book is really because a lot of uh, books for diverse literature are heavily rooted in uh, cultural experiences, or they're rooted in uh, poverty, or somebody needs to be the savior of like this particular group or this particular child. And there's not a lot of stories that just tell like the Black middle class experience and what it's like just day to day living as Black people. You know, yes, we we go to the barber shop, we go to the hairdresser, um, we do cookouts with families and family reunions, but also like we make breakfast with our parents and we go shopping and it's run of the mill. So our goal was to really highlight that uh, and to show that those can be lasting memories too. I think that we as a society have gotten very entrenched and I think social media is part of it, right? Into seeing people's glamorous vacations and thinking those are the only ways that you can build memories, uh, but really just interacting and spending time can do the same thing. So everything in the book is based off of experiences that I had with my mom as a child. And now I'm almost, uh, not almost, I still have a couple of years before I'm 30. Um, but those are things that have really stuck with me and I've, I've clearly cherished them throughout my life. Oh, I love that. When is the book release? So um, the book should officially be released in January of 2023. Oh, perfect. Well, we'll link it in the show notes and on the resources because I want everyone to be able to access it. And I, you know, even as a working mom myself, I do think sometimes that pressure that you mentioned to just make these big things happen where it's really more about the everyday 
Uh, and it's great to have more representation of those experiences within Black families as well. So it's not just this, like you said, these kind of exaggerated views, uh, but it's actually something of everyday memories that can be made. How did you do that with your mom? Write the book or yeah. make these memories? Um, so <laughs> we... <laughs> We had talked about writing a book together probably a couple years ago. And at the time I was still full-time working in a, a pediatric hospital. And so between that and trying to run my social media stuff, there was no time that anything was getting done. Um, then the great 2020 awakening, I feel like happened for a lot of people. And at the end of 2020, my mom retired. Um, going into 2021, I left my job and moved back uh, home. And so one day, like I woke up after working out and just sat there and pushed through uh, to write what we wanted our story to be and sent it to her. And she was like, oh, this is great. And then she started editing and adding things to the story to uh, fill it out a little bit more. That's awesome. That's so great. It's like that surge of thinking about it for a while and then just getting it done. That's yes. Amazing. If you don't, sometimes it's like Nike, just do it, right? (laughs) We can sit there and stew in our head about all the reasons why we shouldn't do something, uh, but that's not beneficial for anybody. So just got to lock in and get going. Well, you are really inspiring that way too. I I love your following your um, social media presence and all the different things that you're pushing out. I think it's pretty amazing. How did you decide on calling yourself the listening SLP? Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, (laughs) For people that like don't know, like I am a huge fan of yours. So when you say that about the things that I put on social media, it uh, really, really means a lot. Uh, How did I decide on the listening SLP name? So uh, I had been following an account called the I want to say she's the black speechy on Instagram for a while while I was actually in grad school. And then I went to Asha in 2019 when I was in Orlando and I knew that I wanted like some username that had something to do with hearing loss because at the time I was working on my auditory verbal therapy certification and so I was like oh like I want something that's going to tie in what I'm going to be doing with being an SLP and so I was like well what does like that really focus on and it was listening like listening and spoken language and so that's kind of how uh that came about, but it has really, I think the meaning for me has changed over the years as my views have changed, as I've grown as a clinician. Uh, so I'm, I, I love the name now because <laughs> it actually has nothing to do with ABT or auditory verbal therapy, um, but really has everything to do now more so with our importance of listening to the people that we serve, listening to the communities that these people come from and making sure that we are building these connections as clinicians. Oh, I love it too. And before I knew, you know, now that I'm hearing what it means, I was imposing those different things on it too. I was like, oh, is it listening comprehension? Is it listening to our, you know, patients and our clients? Is it listening to collaborators? So it's so meaningful across the board. And I just, it makes a lot of sense to me, you know? So you are practicing SLP, as you said, and you have a passion for literacy. Where did that passion come from? Yeah, I love literacy. Uh, So my brother, I have a brother who is almost eight years younger than me. 
And when I was a sophomore in college, it's when he uh, was diagnosed with dyslexia. So he was actually going into the sixth grade. And so that's pretty late when we think about like the years of struggle that he went through with school and completing assignments. Uh, so I was kind of at a crossroads myself. I knew that I didn't really like pharmacy anymore, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so that summer I ended up getting a job at the literacy center that he was at. And I fell in love with uh, literacy. I fell in love with seeing kids make the connections to reading and seeing how it really just opened doors, but also alleviated so much stress for families too. Uh, so I knew that long-term, like I didn't want to go be a teacher. I would have had to start all over again with undergrad and that was not going to happen. <laughs> um, and then I, I did want the autonomy. And so I had like heard about speech language pathology and decided, oh, okay, this is going to still allow me to be heavily involved with this literacy space, but still the autonomy that I want and desire as a professional. That's great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Those personal interactions just make such a big difference to why we make those paths. I think often about just the, those, like, what if you hadn't done that that summer? You know, like those little decisions we make, make such a big impact. Um, you know, can you tell the listeners the ways that SLPs can contribute to literacy assessment intervention and also some of the barriers? Because they know, listeners know I'm a speech language pathologist, but I haven't really talked fully about, you know, the contributions that can be made. And you're a clinical speech pathologist making those contributions. Yeah, I think that that's a really good question because there's so much gray area and a little bit of mystery surrounding what our role in literacy is. Uh, so the one thing that I always tell people when starting off is like, we are SLPs, we are interventionists, but we're not we're not tutors. <laughs> so like really kind of making sure that there's the difference of if we are working with kids that have uh, literacy disorders or reading disorders, that we're making sure that we're tackling like the underlying language principles behind it and not just like putting them through tutoring, um, which we know some kids just need that boost and they don't have those underlying issues. So I think that's the first thing, but it's to really understand what compromises literacy and making sure that you have sound theoretical foundation for how we learn to read. Uh, I think literacy intervention right now is a hot button topic. You know, there's several podcasts that have come out that have really kind of blown up the world of reading instruction within the U.S. Um, and we know that people unfortunately, it's lucrative, right? There are people that are going to pay because they know their kid did not get what they needed to. So I think sometimes we see people getting into it and they just want the, I want this program so that I can do it. Uh, but what I find is that if you can have a strong theoretical foundation of you understand the importance of background knowledge, you understand how print knowledge ties in, language structures, um, phonological awareness, <clears throat> being able to take like alphabetic principle, pair it with phonological awareness to decode these words, that's going to set you up to be much stronger because you can pick up any program. You can pick up anything. You don't even need a program. You're able to do intervention. Um, so where we see SLPs really come heavily into play is really understanding that language component, especially in early on. You don't even have to wait until a child is formally being taught to read to tackle these language principles. Uh, so reading to kids, um, 
being able to point out those print knowledge, print concepts that we should be working on, picking books that have complex language structures within them so that we're tackling these things as well before we even get into reading, and then discussing phonological awareness. Uh, We know that articulation has a huge tie-in with reading, and so when we see these kids on our caseload who are really phonologically I don't want to say impaired, but they have disorders, right? Like that is going to later carry into reading and academics as well. And so addressing those things up front and then working that phonological awareness and a little bit of decoding work if you need to in while we're working with kids from really the beginning. Um, Structured literacy hurts nobody. (laughs) Direct instruction hurts nobody, even for the kids who would have gotten it without. Right. Yeah. I feel like SLPs are often, um, you know, not as seen as so critical to literacy on these teams sometimes. And maybe it's also, I've been thinking like, cause our scope of practice is so large that some SLPs in schools have, you know, feel less comfortable perhaps working in the mm-hmm. literacy realm, but I'm hoping we can break that down. Of course, Ash has had the scope of practice for us since the early two thousands to work with literacy. So uh, you know, it's so important, as you said, to think about those language underpinnings from early on and consistently throughout. I've been thinking, you know, based on the studies we do, that we talk a lot about red flags, like speech and language red flags. But I've been thinking they're less red flags and more like a crystal ball. Like we shouldn't, and I don't mean crystal ball, like it has to be, uh, you know, deficits in literacy, but we don't need to wait and see. If you have difficulty, it needs to be worked on at the time and support needs to happen, you know, uh, throughout that process. But, but I do think that it seems like, you know, uh, we're making, you know, more strides towards being included in the literacy story and the literacy, you know, curriculum and and policies and those kinds of things. Um, Yeah, I I, I agree. I think that we're seeing a shift of people kind of understanding a little bit more about the roles of SLPs within the space. And going back to your point with our field and our scope of practice being so broad, I think it's hard for people to pinpoint down, right? A teacher, you know what a teacher does. Their job is very like streamlined as far as our thinking goes. Same thing if you hear reading interventionists, like you can pretty much know exactly what they're going to be doing. You hear speech language pathologists and we start saying all the things that we do. And it is overwhelming to the person who is not familiar with our job. And then that also makes it difficult for, um, like if we're thinking about it from like the administrative side, how do you incorporate this person who has all these different things that they're supposed to be doing? So I feel for our school-based therapists because they are really seen as generalists in the catch-alls instead of um, allowing them to kind of niche down a little bit into the areas that they need to. But there, there are good trainings out there. There are ways that we can make waves. So if you are a school-based person and you're listening to this, like we fully acknowledge sometimes there are barriers that are outside of your control when thinking about how you can be involved with literacy. But then I think that's where we can, instead of trying to think about doing the intervention piece of it, we can talk about like, how can I incorporate this within what I'm already doing? Yes, I may not be able to do the straightforward intervention, but I'm able to pull in these other language components and pieces that I know are gonna be just as valuable. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense too, because the caseloads are so high. And I think we often do think about direct intervention, but there's so much more that we could do that's more of a soft touch, I think, that can make a big impact on the children we serve and 
and potentially within our districts too. But I often see it's almost like, you know, those are your kids versus our kids. And I'm trying to think the, the whole, like, these are all of our children and how do we support them as a team? But it's easier said than done. And caseloads are a huge problem. And like you, it's not just, yeah, you've touched on how much that can be done, um, but it's hard to do it within the system right now. Um, well, you know, speaking of the system, you know, I've been working to really think through early identification, particular poor readers, like children with dyslexia, uh, poor language comprehension, uh, children with developmental language disorders, but what are issues that clinicians are tackling in the spaces that you're seeing around identification support for poor readers uh, currently based on your clinical view? Yeah, so I think that we've been seeing a lot more people do screeners uh, for dyslexia a little bit earlier on than previously was done. So I think that that's kind of key in helping identify some of these kids earlier. Um, but there is so much misinformation about dyslexia, what it looks like, what it presents like uh, with kids to the point that I we still are seeing a lot of that wait and see game. You know, most people don't realize that um, having potential like delays with language or difficulty with expressive language and understanding can be a later precursor for dyslexia. Having difficulty with articulation can be a later precursor. Um, the ability to not hold on to information or working memory is uh, impacted could potentially be a precursor. Um, so I think therapists are really kind of in this space of unknowing um, because some of these impacts are also unknown. I think also too, we know that our reading instruction in this country is not where it should be. And so we also see a lot of kids that are coming through and across doors where parents are wanting um, and seeking out advice because they are like, my kid is struggling with reading they're dyslexic. This is where I talked a little bit about, like, we have to understand that we are interventionists. We're not tutors um, because we do have these kids that are struggling. But then when you do diagnostics and tests, we run the gamut and they're not, I mean, they're not impaired in the way in which we would work with them. Yes, they have difficulties, but they could be served somewhere else. So what do we do as a clinician? Do you take this kid on for like to work with them, even though technically you don't have to be the professional that serves them. This is not like a speech and language based difficulty or do you refer them to somebody else for tutoring? Um, so I think that sometimes those are the conversations that people are having privately, but maybe not having out loud. Yeah, that's what, what do they say, like an um, educational, what is that educational? Mm, I'll have to think about it. There's some, some term used for that, that it's basically indicating that that the difficulty the child's having has to do with the educational environment, the curriculum that's used in the school, not having to do with having a neurobiological difference associated right. with dyslexia. Um, I'll think of it. Maybe, maybe I'll think of it during the podcast. <laughs> maybe I won't. Uh, but, it, but I think the point is still, is still made, like you said, like having to try to figure out, you know, what is, uh, oh, I know it's educational casualty. Is that ah, like yeah. a curricular casualty or something? It's basically like you have a curriculum that isn't teaching you to read. And so you look like you're, you're having difficulty, but you're not. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that in terms of the intervention. I've definitely thought about it in terms of, uh, you know, thinking of screening and false positives, because we see a lot of false positives 
when you have children who are in curricula that don't work because then they look like they're at risk for dyslexia. But what really happened is they haven't been taught in an explicit systematic way. Uh, so then that creates, you know, more of a false positive long term. So that is that's really interesting. Um, I also I'm wondering how you what you're thinking, too, from your clinical experience about some of the research labels that are used, like we're talking about dyslexia, developmental language disorder, but in clinical practice, those aren't used as much. So what has been your experience with those kind of mismatch between the labels clinically research and even in school based practice? Oh, I think it creates a whole bunch of confusion. <laughs> like even when we think about billing codes, if you look at the billing code for dyslexia, um, there is one that says dyslexia, but there's also one that's like specific reading disorder. And then like they have like a little hyphen and then it says dyslexia. So what are we using? What goes on the reports? Who knows? Um, it, it creates confusion for families, right? Because they're hearing all of these different terminologies and things thrown around. And we don't do a good enough job as professionals sometimes of making sure that people fully understand. I think we assume that like, oh, you like will understand, or we put like a little disclaimer in our evaluations, or even within our research, um, we might like spell it out and think that somebody should just understand this. And the reality is that people don't. Um, recently, I did a talk at ASHA on health literacy. And that was one of the things that I talked about was we're putting these caveats in, we're using these jargon terms, we're expecting people to understand, but we're also providing them in handouts. We're providing them within reports. We're not thinking about, and we're just assuming everyone is a reader. Oh, you're a reader. So like, you know, you're an adult, you can read this, here you go. We're not even thinking about uh, the number of adults that are undiagnosed dyslexics. We're not thinking about the people that are poor comprehenders. And so we're just assuming that everyone should consume this information in this one modality um, with no regard to the fact that they aren't. So that's like kind of an aside, but the point is still like with all the different terminology changes and the way in which we distribute this information, it can be really confusing to families. It's also really confusing sometimes as a professional. Oh yeah. I, I always think if the profession is confused by it, how are families supposed to figure this out? And it, it's frustrating because um, you know, I, from my angle, it seems the confusion is more around systems that are in place. So there's systems of research, there's systems of uh, identifying children for services in schools, there's systems for identifying and, and serving children through private practice. So the systems create structures and those structures don't match, but it doesn't mean that these kids don't exist and that these kids don't need service. So it's as we debate, quote unquote debate, uh, some of these labels or think through them, uh, you know, in the meantime, these children exist and they need support. And so sometimes I'm, I'm frustrated by how to coordinate a bit more across mm -hmm. the systems. Um, because I think that with, with my work in dyslexia versus DLD, dyslexia, people know about dyslexia, but there's a lot of misunderstanding. But with DLD, I first have to basically convince people that it exists because there is no consistent label and no public awareness. And I imagine that might be really tricky for families too, especially when we think that we're serving families that are in extended families. And when you have to kind of go explain to a grandparent, for instance, this is what my child's dealing, you know, this is your grandson, this is what he's dealing with. 
Right. And then there's like no consistent kind of label for it. Um, yeah. Well, and even thinking about Tiffany, like how the labels influence services, right? So like we have DLD, developmental language disorder, um, but in a medical setting, if you see the word developmental on something, insurance is kicking that back. Like they are going to be like, oh no, it's developmental. That means that it's typical. You will outgrow this. You will be able to do something. Like it has to have like the word disorder um, coordinated with it in order for insurance to even take it seriously. And then you switch that back to the schools and schools don't sometimes call things dyslexia or DLD. They'll say like, it's a specific learning disorder. Um, so it's just like a mixed bag of things to all fit within the system instead of just, we're going to call the spade, the spade. And that's what it is. <laughs> like We don't need different terms based on the different settings. It's, it's all the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Um, and we have, yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I just want to circle back to your health literacy. I think that's such important work. And so it's just so critically important. And, um, you know, even just as myself, but being a patient, you get so much information. And I think about it through the lens of those who I serve, who may not be able to, you know, take that in efficiently, that information through text or comprehend it. So either one, whether it's the decoding part or the comprehension, and there's just so much. So even myself, who you know, I consider myself a, a, a good comprehender, that's a lot of information. So it's like information overload for someone who doesn't have struggles in that way, uh, having struggles and having that be the way that you're making very big decisions um, I think there needs to be so much more huge decisions yes. and we expect people to sign on the dotted line as soon as it's done. You've oh. sat here in this meeting. You don't know what we really talked about because you're just trying to like follow along. Oh, but now please sign this piece of paper saying that you agree with the treatment that we recommended that you agree with the IP and the services. That is, um, that is something that I struggle with as a clinician of something that I don't I don't think I feel comfortable with that. And that that used to be part of my job <laughs> when I worked other places was you give the people the plan and they just sign it. Um, and so now in clinical practice, I actually don't do that with my families. Um, I always try to send them a copy of the evaluation or the report beforehand, but we talk through it together. And then I say, if like, I want you to take your time now and read through this for yourself, if you have any questions, if there's something you would like me to um, add, or if there's something you think we need to change or discuss, please like feel free to take time to do that. And so you're allowing people to take time to absorb information, especially because some of the things that we talk about as SLPs um, can be hard on a family. Like if you're not expecting that your child is dyslexic, you're not expecting language disorder, um, or you're not expecting that like your child could have some characteristics of autism or anything that's weighty to hold in that moment and sit there with it. And then to have people just like shove things in your face of like, all right, you, you do that. We have to, we have to allow the space for compassion and patience and allow people to make um, well-informed decisions and nobody can do that in the moment. Yeah. I think that's so, yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's something that's easy to neglect in a busy schedule and taking for granted when you're just thinking about your own, you know, ability to do something. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I wondered what your thinking was on, and I really struggle with this a bit is 
What do you think about this, you know, label stigma that can come with having labels? Like I tend to push labels out just only thinking about uh, advocacy and getting services that are needed. But what about label stigma and also over and under identification and text test bias and systemic racism that's in tests? And yet we're somehow basing everything on a test. This is a constant struggle. I'd love to hear you think through that. Yeah. So Tiffany's coming in with the tough questions. (laughs) (laughs) Can you please solve all the problems on this podcast? The fake pieces. Uh, So uh, let's see, where do we want to start with this? So we can, I guess, start with tests because I think that's the one that people are most willing to be like, yes, there's a lot of bias in tests. Um, And it's true. Like there's so much bias in tests. When we look at the stimuli, when we even look at the pictures of the things that are used, like it's really terrible and awful, but that's where we come in as clinicians and you supplement. So like, yes, I'm going to use this test because I don't have another tool until the next great tool is invented. I have to use what I have, but you can always supplement with asking parents questions, um, asking caregivers, families questions, doing some of that kind of dynamic assessment, and then making sure that whatever you're pulling to do that is culturally responsive to that child, because you might get completely different results. Um, There are plenty of kids who have never been to a laundromat, or there are plenty of kids who have never gone camping. But if you pull something that they have done and you ask them very similar questions, you might realize that like they don't have difficulties at all. It's a background knowledge. They don't have a solid foundation to be answering these questions. So I I strongly believe that we have to be creative and think outside the box uh, in order to do that component. And then label stigma is real. Um, even in my own family, I've talked about this pretty openly. I, you know, it was tough on our family to kind of have labels on my brother. And my mom, she says like, it was a struggle to kind of come to that realization that my child would have a label, uh, because in certain communities, um, particularly white ones, like it's kind of well known that if you get the label, then it's opening doors to services and things that you want and advocacy, and we're going to lead the charge. But in minority communities, um, especially within the Black community, it's seen as a a stigma. Like you now have an additional label, right? So you have the label of being Black. You have the label of whatever um, your gender, how you choose to identify is. So let's say you're Black male. Oh, now you're dyslexic. Now you're ADHD. Now you're autistic. It's like, it's the pylon of more things to bear and carry the shoulders of. And so it's tough. It's tough to have those conversations. Um, But I appreciate you for asking things like that, because I think the more that we have professionals that are willing to address the stigma we have with labels and how it makes people feel, but also when we allow space for uh, diverse professionals to speak on these things, I think it helps to amplify and normalize within these spaces that having a label um, is not a shameful thing. It is how in this system, We are choosing to identify so that we can open up a world of opportunities that otherwise is closed without it. Oh yeah, that's, that's really, yeah, that's really powerful to think through. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I just, yeah. It's always thinking through um, 
the how the label is viewed within the family culture, within the culture of the person, and also thinking about how a label can enable versus disable. Uh, there was a paper that I really like by Gabby Schlickman, who has dyslexia herself, and she wrote about how uh, the label has been, you know, how kind of the the mental process that she's gone through to, you know, have the label. And Gabby is a black, I'm sorry, white woman. So she doesn't have the extra aspect, you know, the aspect of thinking through the labels that you've already been given and then piling on, like you mentioned, that pile on. Um, and then I think too, it's, it's tricky when it comes, you know, I think in the ideal world, we would never have labels. <laughs> that would be the ideal. But I, right. I think I've accepted after pushing back on that for quite some time. Now I'm like the opposite where I'm like accepting that labels might be empowering if they're used the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think like neurodiversity and thinking through those kinds of things, it's really, really hard. And I like what you touched on too, that the label is only because of the societal expectations. You know, if we didn't have, if we weren't a literate society, then dyslexia wouldn't exist. I mean, truly. And um, so it's, it really is the societal expectations that push on the label in general. Cause there may be, I've been thinking a lot about, there may be other neurodivergences that we just don't even talk about, you know, like, cause they're just not even on our radar. Maybe they're not societal expectations uh, about maybe like visual processing or something. I don't, I can't think of one right now, but just thinking through, right. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, and then realizing like people that fall in these categories are not monoliths. Yes. You know, how many times do we hear the dyslexic learner, oh. the like, <laughs> and then people like list a laundry, long laundry list of things that the dyslexic learner needs or could benefit from instead of realizing, no, every person is an individual and they show up as themselves, you know, whatever supports and things that they need might be slightly different. Yes. Dyslexia is the label they have, but they're still a person underneath that. Um, <laughs> they, they have their own needs. They have their own uh, strengths. They have their own quirks about them. And so recognizing that like we have general ideas, but we have to tailor these to meet whoever is presenting themselves in front of us. I think that's so important. Yes. And we've been thinking through in our research, something called the cognitive linguistic fingerprint, which is still narrow for cognitive linguistic, but it's still a fingerprint because everyone's unique. And I think it's almost like the sum of the parts, you know, is or sum is greater than the parts in that way. Right. right? Because it's like, you can't have, I mean, well, stereotypes work like this in general. Like it's just, we can't have the stereotype and then expect someone to be, acting a certain way because they have dyslexia. And even though we, I've, I've been, you know, as I'm working with people too, I think like, this is what I see in them because that's my lens and I want to support, but that may be the, you know, least exciting thing about them from their own point of view. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That, <laughs> like, you know, that's not the thing we need to think about. So yeah, that, it, I don't know. I'm always struggling with that. So it, it's, I'm, I'm glad you're willing to go there, talk about it because I think the more we talk about it, the more we can really play out the nuances. I think as someone who writes a lot about advocacy, I've noticed writing requires more of a persuasive stance, right? And you can't talk about some of these nuances sometimes. Uh, It's almost like if you give a little here, then you're not making your point. And so I think it's helpful to talk through these nuances, um, you know, related to labels and categorization. 
Uh, well, speaking about labels, you mentioned this, but I wanted to talk a bit more about it. You work with children who are deaf or hard of hearing as well. Um, can you tell the listeners about the evidence base for these children in terms of literacy assessment and intervention? I haven't had uh, anyone on the podcast who's really talked to, to these t- children's literacy needs. Oh, yes. So this is a hot button topic um, because like research has been done and shown that the reading rate for um, individuals who identify as deaf and hard of hearing is low. And that's across the board, whether these individuals are using listening and spoken language, whether they're using total communication or sign language, um, their reading rates are not what we would consider adequate. And I think it's because the research is um, not as strong in that area from like, it's not as long. <laughs> we don't have as much as we do for other areas to really know like what's best practice and what's intervention. So I've really been excited about the work um, that Crystal Werfel and Emily Lund have been doing, really kind of digging into phonological awareness, vocabulary, learning, um, and those emergent literacy skills for these kids to figure out what exactly we should be doing in order to make a difference. And a lot of it centers around like we ourselves have to have a really strong foundation um, in understanding these principles, but then also knowing how, like what the proper dosage and repetitions are needed in order to really hone in these skills too. So I'm excited to see um, more about like what this looks like, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And then the differences of like what kids struggle with is interesting too. So we see a lot of kids when they're younger might struggle with the phonological awareness component um, of reading, which isn't surprising, right? Like you have to be able to properly hear and detect the sounds in order to produce them and then start to match uh, the sounds with like the letters. So if we're having any type of hearing difficulties, we might have to spend a lot more time on that component before we move on to other things. But as kids get older, um, like we know that a lot of our kids that are deaf really struggle with pragmatic language, um, mm. social interactions, understanding idioms, jokes. And so what, what happens as our literacy needs switch? Okay, we've switched from learning to read, now we're reading to learn. And then we also see that like there's elements of figurative language that come into play. Are these kids able to keep up with that? Some maybe, some maybe not. And so seeing how we even have to adjust and say like we might have to do explicit instruction and like understanding a joke, um, making sure that we're comprehending all all components to fully access what we are reading. Wow. So then is the idea that it's the hearing impairment, like in terms of the causal mechanism, is it the hearing impairment that makes this difficult over time? So I think it's not necessarily just like the mechanism of hearing, but if we are specifically talking about like someone who's learning to listen and like the language structures, like being able to process all of that because the, a child might be missing certain phonemes or sounds as someone is talking to them or they're not able to attend. Um, one thing that some of my like adult friends who are deaf talk about openly is the listening fatigue and auditory fatigue. So for you and I having a conversation, um, 
we're not completely exhausted, right? Like our brains are doing what they're supposed to do. We're not having to filter through another system in order to access information. When we think about people that are using hearing aids or cochlear implants or any type of amplification device, they are having to filter through like not just their system of hearing, but whatever device they're using uh, to tap into their brain, to hold on to this information, to then process it and give information. It's a lot of working memory and workload that we're requiring of the brain. And sometimes it's it's too much. Um, really, it's too much in order to do all those things. Or we have to actively work in order to extend how much we're able to listen to, comprehend, and hold on to. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really thought through that, that fatigue aspect and the kind of working through a different system or a difficult system in that way. That makes a lot of sense. So I almost wonder if if, uh, if you almost want to check out a little bit, you know, or you just you want to I can imagine how that would affect the social interaction and maybe even wanting to, uh, you know, if you're a child and you have a lot of background noise, too, there's always that going on. And maybe you just decide to you know, use your resources and may not be a conscious decision. uh, But yeah, with all that background noise and competing voices and all of that, it must be really tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you've worked in, you know, clinician researcher partnerships as well, I think around hearing and other things. What have you seen are, are the biggest barriers and benefits for those experiences? And can you tell us about your experience in that way? Yeah. So I think uh, thinking about barriers to it, most clinicians are working themselves to the bone, right? Like their caseloads are big, regardless of the setting or their paperwork requirements are so much that a lot of people are taking work home and doing it unpaid. So uh, thinking about extra is a lot or they don't know who the people are. I have been very fortunate that before I even finished grad school, I had a really good relationship with a researcher. And so that relationship has kind of carried me through. Um, Social media has also really helped in that regard because the researchers and the scientists that are on there, um, we've been able to connect and chat and foster those relationships. And so time is that barrier. Um, But also just knowing like, who do you actually go to for what information? We know that most people, if unless it's printed in an ASHA journal, they're hitting paywalls when they're writing articles in other areas. Um, So it's tough, but I say if you're an SLP that is interested in working more with researchers and building those connections, um, there is, I want to say, somebody has a spreadsheet of like different scientists that are on social media. I think that might be Um, the informed SLP. Yeah. Maybe. Right? Maybe. Maybe. Um, so that's one resource and or see, think- or maybe CSD disseminate. Maybe. Yeah. I don't I'll, I'll try it's to find it's it one of, it's yeah. one of those. Yeah. Um, and then also like starting to reach out to different people, starting to kind of be mindful of who's who, um, cause you can get some really like cool opportunities. Last summer, uh, I got to work on a longitudinal research study for kids that are, uh, deaf and hard of hearing with hearing loss. And basically I just ran tests all day for <laughs> like four or five days and was just a diagnostician. And that was wonderful. <laughs> um, and then recently, uh, 
partnered with a researcher and we got an internal grant funded uh, looking at a writing intervention. So there's so many opportunities that are out there. Uh, we just have to get creative in how to do them. And, you know, like grant writing is not uh, the most fun thing. It can be exhausting and a long process, but the end results are really, really cool. Um, once you have the money and you're able to actually do the science behind what you want to know. And, and again, you can see the benefit for the children and families we serve. That's what drives me to do it as well, because it's, it's exhausting. And no, it's not something I was taught in grad school. So it's not amongst all the things I was taught. I mean, I, I definitely had some experience in the PhD level, but as a clinician, I didn't have experience in this way at all. So it is a whole nother skill set that it has to be developed and, and the time barriers to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, right? Like, I don't even think that we know how much grant money is out there that's not even tied within uh, like NIH or IES or um, institutions. Like many cities have grants and funding and things that people could get access for their clients or (laughs) um, different community events that they might want to do. I think that's the one thing that I have really valued about the fact that my undergrad degree was not in communication sciences and disorders. My undergrad degree is in public health. And so one of my classes that I had to take in order to graduate uh, centered around grant writing. Wow. (laughs) And so we had to uh, like do you know, not to the extent that you would for NIH, everybody, each institution has their own requirements as to what they want for a grant, but just the overall process of like how you identify stakeholders, who are the people that you're targeting, um, creating a budget, working through like a long process and saying like, this is how we plan on accomplishing this. And this is our time frame in which we do it uh, has been helpful because now when like thinking about these kinds of things, even as a clinician, like I'm able to follow along with that thought process. Well, even as a business owner, I imagine that's a good thing to think through. That's a great skill set to have that I definitely did not have as an undergrad or graduate student until I was in the PhD program where I had to learn. So that is a tricky part. I, I feel like as a researcher working with clinicians, I think there's also a barrier. It's going to sound weird, but I think there's almost like a hesitation barrier where I hesitate because I don't want to bother or add, I don't want to pile on, like you say, like all the stuff that has to be done uh, with clinicians. But then I think I always hear clinicians say the same thing to me almost like, well, I didn't want to bother you, you know, in your time. And so it's almost like, um, you know, stepping softly a bit to get, you know, have that connection, but then really realizing once you do have the connection, that it's a shared connection that's worth the time and effort, but it's still hard. So it's got to be valued too. Yeah. It's tricky. Well, you know, uh, I've been trying to work through better ways to think through clinician research partnerships. So I, I, I really um, appreciate hearing your perspective as you're balancing being a clinician, business owner, social media, and all of it. And really then seeing how you're still drawing in research. It's, it's, it's fantastic really. And a lot of things to juggle. So it's helpful to see how you do that and how you prioritize. Um, Well, okay. So we're coming to the end of our time and uh, I always ask these final two questions. So the first one is what are you working on now that you're most excited about? 
Oh my goodness. It's a um, hard one. It is. And I have too much going on. Okay. So I listed some of it. <laughs> okay. So, so the top things that I'm excited about, um, so I will be, I'm working with a company on something that I cannot share like full details on. Um, but like what we're working on is I think really going to help with parent understanding of speech and language, uh, going from birth leading up until around age three. So that Ooh. I can't share. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Um, this is like kind of public knowledge. What the product is, I can't tell you, but uh, working with the Arm Speech Publications on a product, it's going to be a literacy-based product. So really excited to get started on that. And then I'm excited to get started on the grant that uh, I got funded with um, Dr. Crystal Werfel out of Boys Town National Research Hospital. So uh, 2023 is about to be crazy, but I'm excited for all the all the things that are going to happen. Yeah, you know, my students got me this book um, a couple of years ago called The Upside of Stress. And so it's all about like how you can be stressed, but there's also a gift to it because it means you're living your full purpose. And you're really embodying that because that's like you're doing it, but it's going to be stressful, but you're going to do it, you know, and that's the that's really cool. And the book comes out. Yes. And like the book is going to be out. So we'll be doing some um, book signings and making some appearances, different places. So stay stay tuned for all of this. Well, that's a lot to be excited about. I can't wait to hear more about these things as they these things products that I said things, but I meant like products, activities, sightings, all of it that are going to be coming out. That's very cool. Uh, the next question I ask is, what is your favorite book from childhood or now? Okay. Um, my own. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, of course, the one coming out. <laughs> um, no. Okay. So growing up, I loved if you give a mouse a cookie and I feel like that's so cliche, but my mom used to take me to book fairs uh, growing up. So I actually have a signed copy of that one by Laura Numeroff that I keep here at home because, um, if somebody accidentally tore a page, I think I might cry on the yeah, inside. So, <laughs> yeah, I love that one. And then there's one that came out a couple of years ago called Bedtime Bonnet. And that has been uh, by Nancy Red has like become my fast favorite book. It is super cute about a little girl who's getting into her bedtime routine and she cannot find her bonnet, which she needs to sleep. And the whole house goes into chaos looking for this purple bonnet. So it, um, it's like a feel good, like laugh joke book. It is a fun one. I got that for my kids. I think after talking to Lakeisha, maybe, uh, about it and, um, and Lakeisha Johnson and from Maya's book nook. And I, and I got, I got it from her recommendation. That was so, it's a fun one. It's great. Yeah. Also creates a lot of discussion about the need for a bonnet. And that's very cool too, you know, to think through that. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really neat. Yeah. That's great. Oh, that's fun. That's really great. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, Cindy. What a fun talk. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for, Thanks for having time. me. <laughs> oh, no, anytime, anytime, anytime. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. 
You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.